From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, if you've ever had to pass one, you know how painful a kidney stone can be. With small kidney stones, drinking water may be all that you need to help pass the stone. But in some cases, something more invasive might be required. Those bigger stones may need to be broken up or removed surgically. We'll learn about kidney stone treatment and prevention from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program... ERAS, Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. It's an approach that helps patients return home more quickly after an operation. And Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome, the puzzling condition known as POTS. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Kidney stones. You've heard of those, I Tracy? Have. You haven't had any, though, have you? Thankfully, no. <laughs> well, those are small, hard mineral deposits that form inside your kidneys. And they can get stuck in the kidney, or they can get stuck in that tube that goes between your kidneys and your bladder called the ureter. Um, Either place, they can potentially be a problem. And if anyone of anybody in our audience uh, has had a kidney stones or has passed a kidney stones, you know it can be an unpleasant event. The ma- the basis of many sitcom sketches, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on your situation, you may need nothing more than to take pain medication and drink lots of water to pass a kidney stone. In other instances, when the stones are causing complications, more extensive treatment may be required. Here to discuss kidney stones is Mayo Clinic urologist, Dr. David Patterson. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Patterson. Well, thank you. It's great to be back. Dr. Patterson, so nice to see you. I mean, you have been here a long time, about almost as long as I have, so you have seen a lot of stones. We like somebody who is experienced, and you certainly are. A few quarries full. <laughs> quarries full. How, uh, what, first of all, what causes a kidney stone? Dr. Shive says you never had one. I hope I never do. But how do people get them? Uh, most patients who form stones have some underlying metabolic abnormalities. In other words, the, uh, the intestine may absorb more calcium and other constituents of stones than other people do, or the kidney. So the intestine absorbs more calcium, it ends up in the bloodstream and ends up being excreted and and then causes a stone in the kidney, is that what you mean? Exactly. It's filtered through the kidney, there's excessive quantities, and some of those then may clump together and the crystals form and then the stone begins. Other reason for it is that the kidney may filter uh, these constituents uh, not as well as it should, so more calcium and oxalate and other substances end up in the urine in higher proportions than in normal people. That, in conjunction with dehydration, are probably, is probably the, the three most common causes. And, and uh, when we evaluate patients for stones, we try to make sure that they go through a metabolic evaluation. Uh, it's usually performed here at the clinic by our nephrology department, but some urologists also do that uh, in their offices. I sort of missed that. There's, you said three things. One was you absorb more, some people absorb more calcium from their gut. Dehydration. And what was the third one? Uh, the kidney may filter more. Uh, may may not filter as well. And oh, so okay. we don't reabsorb the calcium or the oxalate. Uh, as normal people would, and more of it ends up in the urine, so you get higher concentrations, and then you start to have crystal formation. Uh, okay. Now, is I know there are, are there are several different kinds of stones. Is it important to know what kind of stone you have? It is because uh, there's a s- small variety of stones that can be dissolved that do not need any mechanical or uh, manipulation to remove the stone. 
uh, cysteine stones uh, and uric acid stones are the rare type of stones that can actually be dissolved by giving patients medication or uh, increasing their hydration. Um, and those stones, actually, we can rid uh, the patient of those stones just with those medical th therapies. So, but you, you wouldn't know that it was a cysteine stone unless they had had one previously or passed one? Or how do you know if it's a cysteine or a uric acid stone? Correct. Uh, generally, you have to have a stone to analyze and evaluate. Uh, there, a CT scan today can actually clarify uh, uric acid stones just on the basis of of how opacified it is, they can calculate how hard it is, and they can come up with uh, uh, the diagnosis that it's probably a uric acid stone. And in that group, uh, we can then treat them medically. Do you ever see uric acid stones in people who don't have a history of gout? Yes. You do? Yes. 10% mm -hmm. of patients uh, who form uric acid stones will have gout. Uh, and gouty patients who you know have gout, uh, approximately uh, 30 to 40% of them will can have uric acid stones. And you can dissolve those uh, stones and cysteine stones with medication? Correct. And if you don't have one of those kind, then what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, if they can't pass their stone uh, spontaneously on their own with some, maybe some painkillers and some other medication, then we have to actually go into the urinary tract uh, or use shockwave lithotripsy, and I'll, I'll review the, the various modalities we have. If I could just expand on the background, just to give you an idea of the, uh, the numbers of stones in this country, in the United mm -hmm. States, uh, about 11% of men are carrying or harboring uh, kidney stones. So you don't have the pain unless the kidney stone comes out of the kidney. Correct. That's when you experience the pain. Right, and about 6% of women have kidney stones. So almost 20% of the population uh, have some kidney stones already. Oh, wow. And so that's, you know, 60, or 60 million roughly out of 325 million people in this country. Now, how many of those actually pass their stone or how many of those stones fall loose and then get stuck in the ureter? About 300,000 a year. So a pretty small number relative to the the, the, the potential, yeah. Quarry is so, a stone that people are carrying around. I shouldn't have so quickly said, no, I've never had a kidney stone, because well, maybe, harboring maybe one. I have, <laughs> and but I started drinking more water and dissolved it and didn't even know. Yes, most patients of the 60 million I'm talking about have no idea they have these stones, and only if you get an x-ray of some sort that we can actually see them. But the good news is the majority live with them, and, and it, they don't cause problems. But of that 300,000, then they report to the emergency room with back pain, blood in the urine, nausea, vomiting. They're the typical symptoms that we may see with those. That's, uh, and this pain can be fairly severe, correct? Very, very. If you talk to women who've had children <laughs> and had stones, they will tell you they would rather have 10 children than one more stone. Really? It's Why is it so painful? The, the, the tube that coming from the kidney to the bladder is quite small, uh, quite small, and it doesn't stretch very well. Hmm. And and it, the, the, ur the ureter is trying to get rid of that stone, so it clamps down above it and tries to squeeze it out, and it's that spasm that that really creates the the significant amount of pain, partly from the, the spasm itself, but also the urine will then back up into the kidney, putting pressure on the kidney and the nerve endings of stretch in the kidney, and that's where you get a really the, the, the severe pain. And usually that pain is in the in the flank back. 
in, in the exactly? flank, uh, kind of right from the armpit down to the top of the hip in that midline area on the side is where it starts, usually up underneath the rib cage on either side, and then it rotates around down towards the bladder. And um, when these patients show up in the uh, emergency room, are they usually, uh, how do you confirm the diagnosis? We have to get an x-ray. Today it's, it's a CT scan without contrast, and most stones have calcium in them, so they will show up as a white spot on, on the x-ray. And we also can see all the other organs in the abdomen, but we also look at the kidney to see if there's any backup of urine behind that stone, well, how many other stones there are. Um, and, and sometimes, actually, if the urine backs up severely enough, it can leak outside of the kidney, and we can see what we call extravasation or leakage of, of urine and or dye. Um, the importance of that is it just signifies the acuteness of the, of the stone, the fact that we may need to treat it sooner rather than later, particularly if you have leakage of dye or contrast. All right, we're talking about kidney stones, um, different kinds of kidney <laughs> stones, what the symptoms are, why they develop, and how many people have them, which is truly interesting, or harboring a stone. You said 60 million people? Close to that, yes. All right, urologist Dr. David Patterson, time for a short break. When we come back, we've got a myth or matter of fact, though. Don't we love this one? If this is the reason <laughs> why we have Dr. Patterson here, as a matter of fact, because I heard this this summer and thought, this cannot be true. Myth or matter of fact, riding a roller coaster may help you pass a kidney stone. We'll find out when we return. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is urologist Dr. David Patterson talking about kidney stones. And we got to hear about the roller coaster. Oh Hit or, myth or matter of fact? Myth or matter of fact, you can get rid of a kidney stone by riding a roller coaster. Is, is that a myth or a fact? Well, there's one article that I, I'm, I'm aware of that... that <laughs> That's all it takes to get it on the news. That this idea was tested, and in fact, uh, not in a real person, but in a model that was placed on the roller coaster, both in the front area of the ro roller coaster and at the back end of the roller coaster. <laughs> and they had pre-planted in this model stones of various sizes in various locations in the kidney. And then they ran them through the roller coaster, and they made multiple, multiple runs. And so they had a good time. Uh, but the stones... Uh, in fact, dislodged and were passable at the end of the run, particularly in those stones that were in the, at the back of the roller coaster. And why, scientifically, why would that be? My theory would be that, obviously, as you go in a roller coaster, you know how much Jocelyn, portion right. that, that occurs. Tremendous momentum changes. And the kidneys live really right next to the backbone. And so it's not hard to figure out that those forces could be easily directed through the kidney. And if you have a stone that's in a calyx or just lightly attached to the papilla of the kidney where they form, I could see where those physical forces would dislodge those stones. So since you read this article, have mm -hmm. you changed what you advise patients to do when they're suffering <laughs> in the most intense pain they've ever felt? Disney World, because if you go there in the winter... you got to go to Florida. You can't do it here, oh, right? Oh, that's so funny. In the middle of the winter. So if you don't have access to a roller coaster, <laughs> you come into the emergency room, uh, the, the CT scan shows that you've got a stone. What happens next? Well, we assess the size and location of the stone and how much obstruction there is behind the, the, the stone and also whether or not they're, they're infected. Do they have infection in the urine or bacteria in the urine? Those are all factors that we assess. If the stone is less than five millimeters, that seems to be the critical size 
below which patients normally will pass those stones with time. And unfortunately, they can have some pain with that and, and continue with symptoms, but they will, we will place them on some narcotics and uh, a drug called uh, Flomax, which relaxes the muscle within the ureter, ureteral wall, uh, takes away some of that spasm, but also helps dilate the ureter just slightly enough that hopefully they'll pass the stone. Hmm. And we give them some days to weeks to do this, depending on the size of the stone. And uh, most of those patients will spontaneously pass their stones. And are they more likely to have kidney stones again once you've had them? Yes, unless they go through this evaluation and change either what they eat uh, uh, or drink. Uh, maintaining really good hydration is probably the key factor. But if they're taking in excess amounts of certain foods or beverages, then they're going to be in the same trouble. And plus, uh, many of them will have stones still in the kidney that they formed, and those are always uh, eligible to pass. All right. What about greater than five millimeters? That's then what, what I was just going to say. Tell me about the <laughs> biggest kidney <laughs> stone that you've ever taken out or that has ever passed. Well, the biggest stone that probably ever passed, in my experience, would probably be about a centimeter or 10 millimeters, maybe a little less than a quarter of an inch, which is a big, big stone. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, but that's very uncommon. Most stones over six millimeters uh, get stuck somewhere in the course of that ureter. Is that the size of a pea? Six? Six millimeters. Pretty close, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. And what do we do? Then uh, if we assess that they're going to need some intervention, uh, several options. One is to bypass the stone with a stent a hollow plastic tube that we place under anesthesia. Uh, this goes by the stone, and uh, one end is up in the kidney, comes down the tube, the other end is in the bladder, and that will temporize. That will get the kidney draining properly, relieve pressure, most of the symptoms will disappear, and we can, we can then uh, bring that patient back later for definitive therapy. Now you do that through a scope, right? You put the scope up through the urethra, you're inside the bladder, and then you can see the opening where the ureter comes into the bladder and you snake that tube right. up the ureter. Yeah, we place, the, we place a small little guide wire, which goes all the way up to the kidney. We do this under x-ray control so we can see where that wire is going. And uh, then we slide over that guide wire, uh, the, the tube or stent. That's and that's if, if everything's clogged up and the kidney's getting big. and Yeah. And, and why don't you just take the stone out while you're there? Well, most of the time we do. But, <laughs> okay. but these are in, this, is, this is one option that one can do, particularly if they're in, infected. Uh, mm, you okay. don't want to manipulate them too much. And some patients who are really severely infected, uh, we just put a tube in through the side, what we call a nephrostomy tube. The radiologist will place it through the skin into the kidney, and it'll drain the kidney from above the stone. And we'll treat the infection, and then 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 go back later and remove it. So you actually put a hole in the through in the kidney. That doesn't sound like what I'd want to do. Well, in, in rarer situations, you really don't want to be in the urinary tract uh, manipulating it because then you seed more bacteria into the bloodstream, and then they can get septic and go into septic shock, and and um, that's not good. Yeah, that's not <clears throat> a good thing. So, but most of the time, um, we don't need to temporize necessarily. We will then schedule the patient for. Uh, possibility of three different procedures depending on where the stone is located and um, what, what technologies you have at your hospital and the skill of the, of the surgeon or urologist that's going to be doing it. So you got three options. What are they? Well, uh, we have three options. One, uh, I'll, I'll go with the rarest first, which is a percutaneous nephrolithotomy. That's which is their doctor words. Yep. 
which yeah. means if we're going through the side again uh, with the patient's sleep, we actually create a hole from the skin into the kidney about the size of my small finger. I have pretty small fingers. And um, then we put a telescope into the kidney. We can actually look inside the kidney, see the stone, and, and then we use a device called an ultrasonic lithotrite or a, a device which actually fragments the stone into pieces, small pieces, and then we have a suction technique where we can suck the stones out, the fragments. This is for stones that are larger than two centimeters. Two uh, centimeters? Yeah, about an inch, less than, a little bit less than an inch uh, or larger. And you can have stones that are as large as the inside collecting system of the kidney. We call that a staghorn calculus. And those are multiple inches in, in volume. Well, wow. All right, let's go to plan B. <laughs> plan B. Now, and, and, and for instance, uh, the number of percutaneous procedures we do around the country relative to the next two techniques I'll talk about is quite small. Okay. Uh, yeah. The next option, which is probably uh, equal to the, the final option, is uh, shockwave lithotripsy. This has been around for many, many years where we actually place the patient asleep or under uh, heavy sedation and actually direct shockwaves from outside the body, focus it on the stone inside the body, fragment the stone into sand-like pieces, and then those pieces wash out in the urine. You blow it up. We, we, we blow it up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's more exciting. Yeah. But it's not like dynamite going off. All this right. Is, this is a, <laughs> a small stick. It's controlled dynamite. fragmentation of the yeah. stone. These pieces uh -huh. aren't flying as projectiles all over the inside of the kidney or urethra. All right. All right, okay. number three. What do we do? Then we do a ureteroscopy, which is, again, going through the natural channels with patient sleep, small, tiny t telescopes, basically, up to the stone. And we can either basket it, snare it in a basket and pull it out, or we break it up with lasers and, again, small pieces and then basket those pieces. Blow them up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like that option, don't I'm you? I'm trying to make it exciting for radio. we got to <laughs> blow those stones up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We just got a little time remaining. And uh, for everybody out there, uh, the 60 million people who are harboring a stone, and, of course, the people who have had a previous stone, what do we do to prevent these? The number one thing that patients can do to help themselves the most is to stay well hydrated. Avoid dehydrated states. Uh, if you exercise a lot, you know, drink a lot. Drink throughout the, the exercise. Don't wait till the end. If you're jogging, marathoners, that type of work. Drink, drink, drink. Keep the urine clear or lightly yellow, not heavy, dark yellow. All right, everything you wanted to know about kidney stones with Dr. David Patterson, urologist. Let's go have a drink. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Patterson. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, how enhanced recovery after surgery can help shorten a patient's hospital stay. And a little later in the program, we'll learn about the condition known as POTS. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Water is generally the best way to replace lost fluids, but if you're exercising or training for more than 60 minutes, a sports drink can deliver important nutrients to help maintain your body's electrolyte balance. Mayo Clinic sports dietitian Erica Goldstein says endurance athletes should pay special attention to three lines on the nutrition label. Sodium is very important in a sports drink because it helps you absorb both glucose, which is sugar, and water. 
Goldstein says to aim for about 450 milligrams of sodium per 24 ounces of sports drink. Sugar is also important for endurance athletes. You can't really absorb water without both sodium and sugar. However, too much sugar can cause gastrointestinal distress. So, to avoid symptoms like bloating, cramping, or diarrhea, Goldstein suggests keeping sugar below 30 grams per 24 ounces of sports drink. Finally, pay attention to potassium. Goldstein recommends no more than 225 milligrams of potassium per 24 ounces. And in other news, it is sore throat season. A sore throat caused by a viral infection usually lasts five to seven days and doesn't need medical treatment, but to ease pain and fever, many people turn to acetaminophen or other mild pain relievers. Use acetaminophen for the shortest time possible and follow label directions to avoid side effects. So if you have young kids, consider giving them over-the-counter pain medications designed for infants or children check the labels, and use caution when giving aspirin to children or teenagers. Children and teens recovering from the chicken pox or flu-like symptoms should never take aspirin. This is because aspirin has been linked to a syndrome that's rare but potentially life-threatening. So if your sore throat is caused by a bacterial infection, your doctor will prescribe antibiotics. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, after successful surgery, and I'm pleased to tell you that most surgeries are successful, (laughs) the goal of most patients is to get out of the hospital as quickly as possible. I mean, you want to get home after your surgery. Absolutely. To help patients achieve that goal, Mayo Clinic's Department of Colorectal Surgery is utilizing an innovative approach known as Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. Or ERAS. Some of the elements of ERAS include preoperative counseling, preemptive pain management, avoidance of opioid pain medications after the surgery, and getting moving again quickly, even walking on the first day of the operation or the first day after. While this approach requires teamwork among surgeons, anesthesiologists, nursing staff, and the patient, it has proven to shorten the hospital stay and even increase patient satisfaction. Here to discuss enhanced recovery after surgery is Mayo Clinic colorectal surgeon, Dr. Robert Seema. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Seema. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Tom. Dr. Seema, good to have you here. You know, I can remember the day when we would do a uh, hip operation, hip replacement or knee replacement, and the patient would stay in the hospital two weeks. Doesn't happen anymore, does it? No, not anymore. And uh, in many respects, that's good for the patient. Uh, What we've known from a lot of information, a lot of studies, is the longer patients stay in the hospital, the higher their risks of uh, complications. Um, because they're not doing what they normally do. They get exposed to things they don't normally need to be exposed to. And uh, it's just one of those areas where getting home and getting back to your routine actually helps you. You've talked in the past when you've been with us about all of the preoperative stuff that you can do to get ready for surgery, and that's part of this ERAS. So ERAS is is not something unique to Mayo, but it's something relatively new to the United States. It was uh, started in in Europe about 15 years ago, where a a surgeon and a group of, uh, of his colleagues felt that one of the things that was contributing to patients staying longer was not just because of the things we did to them, but also because of how we did it and the fact that some of the things we were doing sort of were counterproductive. So they took a whole different approach to looking at uh, recovery and preparing the patient for the recovery and trying to do things that minimize disruption. So we weren't traditionally feeding patients right away. Well, what do you normally do? You eat. 
And so they started feeding patients the night of surgery. They started letting them drink rather than giving them IV fluids because what would happen is oftentimes in the hospital, we would just give them a set amount, which is often too much, and then they'd feel all bloated and their body would sort of get overweight and things. Then they have to get rid of that fluid. So they just said, let's stop doing that. So there's a lot of little things we were doing that we thought were best, but when you put them all together, they were actually probably not the best approach. And keeping patients in the hospital longer than they needed to stay. And yeah, not only keeping them, but also forcing them to stay longer because we were now having to address the issues that we had done to them. We'd have to get the fluid off of them, all that extra fluid we gave them. I still can't get over that you said a hip replacement they'd be in for two weeks. How long is it now? Two days, and in some places they're experimenting with same-day knee surgeries. Uh, where the patient will have the knee surgery and leave that evening. What do you tell the patients? I mean, do you counsel them before the surgery about what's going to happen and how you're going to try to get them out of the hospital quickly? That's actually the most important goal, is to educate the patient and set expectations and inform them about what they're doing. As you know, a lot of our patients here at Mayo have had surgery before or have surgery by us before, and then they come back and I say, all right, we're going to do your intestinal surgery. I may have done something to them five years ago, six years ago, and I say, you're going to leave in three days. That's what we hope. And they're shocked because by th- <laughs> last time, three days ago, they were just starting to eat. So patient education is key. Family education is key. Setting up the expectation that, yes, this is normal. This is what we want you to do. Those are essential elements of ERAS, patient education. If they're going to get a stoma or if they're going to need rehab, do that up front rather than when they're recovering from the surgery. Let them know what the plan is. We also very aggressively treat pain prior to surgery. Avoid systemic narcotics. Put them on scheduled Tylenol. Put them on scheduled Motrin. Give them medicines before we even made an incision. So some of the things that we give for chronic pain patients, we'll give a single dose of that to modulate that pain. And what we find is patients waking up who they're reading the New York Times the night of surgery because we've set the expectations and we've worked with our anesthesiologists to set up a pain management program that they know about ahead of time and that is multimodality so that we give them a spinal, we give them Tylenol, we give them ibuprofen, we avoid systemic narcotics so that by the time they're ready to really start eating and taking oral pain medicines, they're already on board, they've already got their medicines ahead of time, and they're ready to go. Tell our uh, listeners what you mean by systemic narcotics. Well, what a lot of patients are used to getting the IV pain pump, where you press a button and you get narcotics to relieve your pain. Problem with that is that when you give it IV, it affects every part of your body. Your brain, you get nauseous, all these other things are bad side effects from systemic narcotics. So now, as we've learned in multiple other areas of surgery, such as orthopedics, if you can give a regional narcotic or a regional painkiller to the area that's most affected, that you you can avoid the use of those systemic narcotics. So you're using a block, a nerve block, instead of something that goes to the entire body. Exactly. It just goes to the region. Just goes to the region. So we not that we avoid narcotics because they are a very important component of pain management, but we, we don't rely on them fully. So people say, well, Tylenol is not going to help. Well, Tylenol can help if you use it appropriately and on a schedule and you use it as part of a component of a multimodality pain management. So we use a block of narcotics, we use Tylenol, we use Motrin, and we use other agents to try and avoid the use of systemic narcotics, which have a lot of side effects. What are some of the patient comments that you hear? 
the most important thing we hear is they're up moving around and they don't feel fuzzy. They don't feel <laughs> sick. They, they, they have appropriate amount of discomfort from the surgery, but the other side effects that went with it, the tube in your nose, the things that weighed you down from getting up, those things are gone. And that's actually where they feel better. And you find that less addictive type pain medications, uh, not as strong type medications work very well, especially if you start them before the surgical procedure. Correct. It's not like we give you a prescription beforehand. When I say beforehand, it's the morning of surgery. Okay. We actually start in the pre-op area with medicines. And then when you go to the recovery area, the nurse, once you're awake and able to swallow, she's going to put some Tylenol in front of you. So we're doing a lot of things to get that whole body inflammation to decrease. I don't know how much you're uh, into reading about the history of the Mayo Clinic brothers in surgery, but at our house we're reading that Mayo Clinic book, the Mayo right. Brothers book. It Just to contrast what you're describing for patients in the surgical procedure as to what surgery was when Will and Charlie Mayo were doing it right. is doesn't even seem like we're talking about the same thing because we're really not even. We're not. We're not at all. The, the idea then and, and up until just very recently was you're having surgery that represents you're being sick. And I think the paradigm shift should be you're having surgery to treat a problem and the surgery doesn't mean you're sick. The surgery is a tool to address your problem and we need to accelerate your recovery from the surgery because we've done something to you. Right, and there's nothing like getting home to mom. Right. <laughs> getting out of the hospital. Enhanced recovery after surgery, also known as ERAS, and we've learned about it from colorectal surgeon Dr. Robert Seema. Thanks for being here, Dr. Seema. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about an often misunderstood condition known as POTS. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. These are some doctor words here that I want you to hear. Got it. <laughs> Postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Now that's also known as POTS. That's the <laughs> acronym for the condition. But for those people, everybody, everyday tasks can be a challenge. They have symptoms like fatigue and dizziness, and it can affect their quality of life for sure. And POTS can make exercising difficult, as the activity itself can bring on fainting spells. Oh my gosh, patients with POTS may look perfectly healthy, but they say they feel terrible making it hard for other people to understand exactly what's going on. Here to discuss the treatment and the diagnosis of POTS is neurologist Dr. Jeremy Cutsforth Gregory. Welcome to the program. We're glad to meet you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. Dr. Cutsworth Gregory, how'd you get two last names? It actually is my husband and I. He was Cutsforth and I was Gregory. Ah, uh, got it. One. Now, okay, at I understand. At Thanksgiving dinner, we were sitting there having dinner and I have a relative who said, you got to do a show on POTS. I'd never heard of it before. Well, let me, just let me tell you, this. you'll figure out now how old I really am. When I was in medical school, POTS disease was tuberculosis of the spine, right? It is, but with two T's. Yeah, I deal okay, with but P-O-T-T-S. But this is a relatively new condition, isn't it? A relatively new diagnosis? I think it's newly or? recognized. Yeah. So okay. the original description um, with the term postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which you said is a mouthful, and now people usually say postural tachycardia syndrome, which saves a few syllables. And that term came from Dr. Philip Lowe and the group here in 1993. So oh, the term yeah. has been around a little over 20 years, but actually the disorder, which is essentially symptoms that come on when you stand up, so it's a problem dealing with gravity essentially, probably has been around at least since the Civil War, but then mm. it went by the name Effort Syndrome. The thing that, the th that I have learned about it is that it's 
very difficult to diagnose because there's it's just such a almost random kind of thing. There are a lot of symptoms that can go along with POTS. The central ones, and that ones that lead to the, the name and the diagnosis are the orthostatic symptoms, the ones that come on when you're upright but get better when you lay flat. So usually that's lightheadedness and dizziness, many patients will say. Uh, sometimes fainting, although that can be a separate issue, and then fatigue. But the fatigue is usually one of those symptoms that lasts whether you're upright or flat. Explain that term orthostatic for us. Orthostatic. What orthostatic does it mean? just refers to things that are there when you stand up but go away when you lay flat. Wow. So yeah. you can have an orthostatic headache. I stand up, I have a headache, I lay down, it gets better. Or in this case, an orthostatic lightheadedness. So how is it diagnosed? If the problem that I'm learning from this is that they just people can't figure out that they have POTS, mm -hmm. how do you di diagnose someone with it? In the right clinical context, so if patients have these symptoms that we just talked about, we can send them to the autonomic lab and we do what's called uh, a tilt test. So basically, uh, we measure the autonomic reflexes, how they sweat, how their heart rate can vary based on a variety of stimuli, and then what happens when they are tilted up. And the diagnosis of POTS is basically a heart rate that starts out at some number in flat and goes up by more than 30 when they tilt up. Wow. Hmm. And you said the autonomic laboratory. What is that like? You have a tilt table there, obviously, but what other things can you diagnose in that lab? We look at degenerative diseases, things like Parkinson's disease that can be associated with orthostatic hypotension. Mm. So again, that word orthostatic, something that comes on when the patient tilts up, but in that case, there's a blood pressure drop. That's a main distinguisher between POTS and some of these other autonomic disorders, because in POTS, usually, in fact, almost always, blood pressure is stable, or maybe it oscillates, swings back and forth, but doesn't just drop. Is this something that develops, or is someone born with this? When does this happen? Good question. It, it, there's probably a little bit of both, but most patients do well for a period of time, years, through their adolescence even, and then sometime in young adulthood will develop these symptoms. Uh, about half the time it comes within a couple of weeks after some sort of viral illness, maybe a surgery or a trauma. So there's some sort of inciting event. So maybe there's a post-viral immune effect, although we haven't found a particular infection, and almost never is there an actual infection going on. One of the other things I learned as I was reading about this is uh, there is, at some points, people thought, this is just in your head. This isn't a real diagnosis. Well, it's one of those disorders where it's not a problem with autonomic failure. When you test the autonomic nervous system, it works, but the function of it and the stability of it are what's wrong. So usually, Patients, like I said, will have a stable blood pressure, so the nerves can respond, squeeze the blood vessels, maintain pressure, and yet their heart rate shoots through the roof. So if you send them to the autonomic lab, and, and you said when you tilt them up, their heart rate increases by 30 or more, that's pathognomonic? I mean, that then you've nailed the diagnosis? There's nothing else it could be? You have to have the symptoms to go along with it, mm -hmm. and you have to rule out dehydration, which would be a common reason for someone's mm -hmm. uh, heart rate to shoot up. Uh, and then... The, the right clinical context, as I mentioned. So the symptoms have to be either of uh, lack of blood flow to the brain, lightheadedness mostly, or what we call sympathetic overactivity or hyperactivity. The sympathetic part of the nervous system is the fight or flight response. So imagine when that gets revved up, what happens? Pupils dilate, heart speeds up, gets sweaty, clammy, maybe a feeling of anxiety or nervousness. So those kind of symptoms come along with it as well. What's the prognosis for someone who is finally diagnosed with POTS? Can, do you manage it or is there a cure? Mostly we talk about managing function, improving function, managing symptoms, and in most cases we can do that. 
there has not yet been a very well-designed study for long-term prognosis, but the best data we have suggests that probably two-thirds of patients get back to what they would consider a relatively normal daily function, 90% return to work if they've been out. And but how most, do they do that? And they do that. Uh, the core of the treatment that I uh, learned from the autonomic group here and what I pass along to my patients is fluid, salt, compression, and exercise. So basically, we use the fluid and salt to fill up the tank, fill up the blood vessels so that there is blood to circulate and um, prevent that blood pressure uh, liability. Compression, well, we know that blood pools in the belly and in the thighs when we stand up, and actually some of that happens in all of us, and it probably happens a bit too much in some of these POTS patients. So we, wear, we have them wear compression garments. Think basically squeeze the vessels so the blood can't pool there. A pretty simple concept. Um, it has been shown to, to be beneficial, and many of my patients tell me that it works. And then finally, exercise. A gradual reconditioning exercise, because almost every POTS patient eventually develops, if they haven't already, a degree of deconditioning. If the muscles aren't toned, then they're not going to pump the blood back right. to the heart. Right. Are there uh, any things that uh, patients with POTS should avoid? Mostly it's laying in bed flat. The thing that makes them feel the best. Exactly right. Wow. And so why should they avoid that? The autonomic nervous system, as important as it is, as vital as it is, it gets lazy pretty quick. Huh. If, it, if POTS patients are in bed more than two or three days flat, they will almost always have a major uh, setback and feel like they've gotten much worse and need to work harder. Wow, you can really understand then why people suffer so much with this. So what I'll tell patients is even if you feel crummy, at least try to be sitting up instead of laying flat and be upright at least 10 minutes several times a day. Some patients can't quite make 10 minutes, but it's a goal that's usually achievable. So I know you're uh, doing research into this, uh, about this condition. Tell us what you'd like to know about POTS that you don't. I'd like to know what the cause is in every case. Mm -hmm. And I think it's different. I mentioned the deconditioning. One of the ones that uh, really intrigues me and is an active research project is an autoimmune form of POTS. So a few patients, probably in the range of 10 to 15%, have antibodies to a target that we know is part of the autonomic nervous system. Uh, they're called ganglionic antibodies. They were actually described here by Dr. Stephen Vernino, uh, Dr. Vanda Lennon, and others in the autoimmune lab back in the late 90s. And those antibodies can cause a variety of autonomic disorders. And we found that they are present in some POTS patients. Probably not quite clear if it's definitely the cause of their POTS, but sometimes we can use immunotherapy to make their POTS better. Are you doing specific research POTS research here at Mayo Clinic? We are. So one of the things is I'm looking at every patient who's ever tested positive for that antibody just to try to learn in a retrospective manner what they have and what seemed to help them. Um, we're also looking at, there's been a, a study uh, from here for a particular drug called pyridostigmine or mestidon, a little bit simpler mm -hmm. name, that tries to amplify the autonomic signal you say, well, isn't that the problem that they're unstable and that's mm -hmm. going to make things worse? Well, it tries to prevent that tendency to drop in blood pressure that would provoke the heart rate from going up. POTS expert and neurologist Dr. Jeremy Cutsforth Gregory, you know when you get this figured out, we want to have you back. Because we you want so to much. know how, how, you've, how you understood this disease even more than you do now. It's a worthy Th challenge. Yep. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.